This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Hello, traders, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. I'm the content sommelier around these parts, Jack Pelzer. And as such, I can tell you that today we have a rare vintage of podcast, heavily influenced by the early 21st century electronic trading movement. There are also hints of Forex, trader strategy, and psychology, which are liberally applied by our expert host, Jeff Carter, and his guests. Today, we have the senior editor of All-Star Charts, J.C. Peretz, on the show. All-Star Charts, of course, is one of the premier technical analysis blogs on the web. So where are all my top-step technicians at? This one's for you. No matter what your level of trading expertise, you're going to learn some amazing stuff in this interview. Also, please remember that we're celebrating our 7th anniversary here at Top Step. Traditionally, that would mean that we'd be giving out gifts made of copper and or wool, but that's kind of lame. So instead, we're launching our biggest promotion of all time. That's right. For a limited time, we are offering up to 33% off a whole array of trading combine and reset packages to help you get on the right path towards getting funded. So listen to this podcast, then head over to Top Step Trader or TopStepFX.com and get started. Do you have some idea what you're going to trade in this fancy new account? Well, I do know one man who's always has a few trades in mind. So before today's interview, let's kick things over to the venerable Mark Meadows for his market reaction. This week, the Fed cut interest rates for the first time since 2008. 11 years. Whoa. This sent the dollar rallying and equity markets lower as I record this, just after trading on Wednesday. It'd be nice if someone saw this coming. Oh, wait. I did. Loyal Market Reaction listeners would know that I recently wrote about how I saw this cut as the impetus for the dollar's next move higher and a potential catalyst for lower equities. So kudos to me. But I didn't make any money on this move. What it does for me, though, is show me that right now I am seeing the market clearly. I've been on both sides of that coin, and this is by far the better side. So what's that do to my trading? I may press a little more. I may take more risk. I may take more trades. But if you're not seeing the market well right now, then maybe you should do the opposite. After all, the name of the game is longevity. So here's wishing you a long and profitable trading career. And that's your market reaction. Thank you, Mark. Technical analysis is obviously a huge part of day trading. As a retail trader, charts are your weapon of choice. They're both your shield and your sword. Am I perhaps being a tad dramatic? Yes, but uh, you get the idea. To extend this dumb metaphor further, J.C. Peretz is like the King Arthur of technical analysis. His interview with Jeff today is sure to be enlightening on the whole subject. So without further delay, I'm proud to present this week's Limit Up interview between our very own Jeff Carter and the founder of All Star Charts, J.C. Peretz. Welcome to another edition of the Limit Up podcast, courtesy of TopStepTrader.com. This is Jeff Carter. I'm with WestLoopVentures.com. And I'm interviewing my friend J.C. Peretz today. He's the founder of All Star Charts and is one of the most widely followed technical analysis in the world. 
All Star Charts is a research platform for both professional and retail investors covering U.S. and international stocks, interest rates, commodities, and Forex markets. He earned his Chartered Market Technician designation in 2008, and he's a frequent speaker at top investing conferences and universities. Welcome to the podcast, JC. Jeff, thanks for having me. Yeah, good to hear your voice again. We have known each other, uh, met through Howard Lindzen on StockTwits uh, quite a few years ago now. I can't remember uh, when we actually met. Well, your Twitter handle definitely appealed to me early, point, you know, point in figures. <laughs> yeah, and your Twitter handle is at All Star Charts. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're a match made in heaven, uh, digitally anyway. And then, as it turns out, we are both fond of delicious food and good wine to go with it. So we always got along. And my waistline <laughs> looks like it, yeah. <laughs> and bourbon. <laughs> No, you look good. You look good. The bourbon too. Yeah, f- fair enough. Uh, so you grew up in Miami, yeah? I grew up in Miami, in Florida. My family came from Cuba in the early 1960s. And uh, both my parents were born in Cuba, uh, but they came when they were little kids. So they grew up down in Miami. I was born in, in, in the 80s and um, you know played a lot of baseball and stuff. My parents were cool. They put me in a lot of sports. But uh, you know, baseball is always my favorite. And then Got to play a little college ball up in Fairfield University, you know, right outside New York City. And What position? I was a pitcher by then. You know, growing up, I was always like middle infielder, third base, you know, whatever, short. Right. But then in high school, they're like, well, you're a pitcher now. And I'm like, all right. They're like, start running and don't stop till we tell you. <laughs> How fast did you throw? Uh, not very fast, which is why I'm having a conversation <laughs> with you instead of <laughs> pitching for the Yankees. <laughs> I topped out in the mid '80s. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It wasn't that great. Um, I made a living off my junk and trying to outsmart the hitters and stuff like that. I had to figure other ways to get them out. Yeah, well, Greg Maddox didn't throw '90s either, so and he's in the Hall of Fame. That's right. Yeah. So I always modeled. You know, I was I was never able to paint the plate like he used to, obviously. But you know, my stuff moved a little bit, at least enough uh, to get me that far. Anyway, pitching's an interesting position on the baseball field how did being a pitcher inform your approach to the markets and stuff like that is there any overlap at all yeah i mean there's no question i think sports in general uh but you know i can speak specifically in terms of baseball it's just learning how to lose right i mean i got back-to-back home runs hit off me at uconn you know for example but uh i also struck out a first round draft pick, you know, with a full count uh, on a curveball. Uh, that had to feel good, you know, to to win the game, you know. So like I had my ups and downs, you know, there's the good times and the bad times, but you know, being able to lose, strike out, you know, even when I was younger, you know, you strike out, you know what, and to end the inning with the bases loaded, you know, that's that feels terrible. But you got to go out and, and either pitch, you know, depending on what age you were. Uh, or get back on the field and play defense, and maybe you'll get another chance in a few innings and just learning how to deal with loss. Because think about it, Jeff, as a baseball player, you know, forget as a pitcher, as a hitter, you know, you fail 70% of the time and you're in the Hall of Fame. That's absolutely right. And pitching is such a chess game, right? I mean, it's such a strategic part of the game that it's different being a pitcher than a second baseman. There's no question about it. You, you, you know, you're always, you're trying, it's a chess game because you're thinking about what the hitter's thinking. And you're trying to sort of play with his mind. Like, I got this, like, you know, this big lefty coming in, you know, is ready to hit it 400 feet down the right field line, right? And the first, you know, the first thing I'll do is I'll just throw it up and in a little chin music 
back him off the plate, and then throw a changeup low and away, right? And then throw it back at his head after that, and then low and away again. And just like, you know. Did you ever tip off your infielders as to what you were going to pitch so that they could, like, if this guy's a lefty, I'm going to throw a curveball that's going to break in on him. So if he's short, you know, it's going to go to the, you know, the left side of the infield or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, sometimes, depending on the hitters, like sometimes we'd face like, you know, because I played in baseball in Miami. So, I mean, there's just great talent. Yeah, it doesn't stink down there. I mean. Yeah, full team of future D1 players, you know, easily. Bunch of number one draft picks on the same team and stuff like that. So, like, yeah, we knew who these guys were, obviously. And, you know, we'd we'd have strategies like a big lefty. You know, I'm going to keep it low and away, make them try to pull something and he, let them pop up to left or, you know, hit a dinky to second or something like that because, you know, he just wants that inside pitch to drive it 400 feet. I'm not going to give it to him. You know, you'd also have a guy waiting for a fastball. Just the guy's just sitting on fastball and just going to wait for me to throw one. And I'll just throw him four, you know, four changeups in a row. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So did the discipline that you had to have pitching carry over to what you do today? There's no question. And it, it's it's more of the training, right? Um, if you're a Division One athlete, I mean, the, the training sessions are intense. I mean, it's Sunday morning at 6 a.m. and it's snowing out and you're running sprints on the track while all your friends are hung over or still out for that matter. Like there's no worse feeling in the world, Jeff. So even on a bad day at work, it's not as bad as that. Yeah, no kidding. Did you chew? I did not. I always ask baseball players if they chewed. I did not. I think I did once. I was like, I don't know, maybe 14 or 13. And I went to like this uh, summer camp in Duke. And it was just all really good baseball players. And like everybody was dipping. And I tried it. I got so dizzy. <laughs> I'm like, never again. <laughs> so my first school was the Air Force Academy. I dropped out. I went to a JC in Chicago called Triton College, which was a baseball factory. And my freshman year, I got to be best friends with this guy named Kirby Puckett. I used to steal his bat all the time. Nice. Rest in peace. And um, they were really, really uh, had a great team. And one of their things was they'd go to the skull factory and pick up like sleeves of skull and see who how much skull each guy could get in their mouth. Puckett didn't dip, um, but he did use a wooden bat in college. So anyway, so why why finance? Why did how did you get interested in it? Well, it's interesting because my, you know, my family wasn't really, you know, into stocks or anything like that. Yeah. What did your parents do? My mother's an advertising exec. My father's a lawyer, you know, and I would intern with my dad and it was just so boring. Like I was always like filing, you know, so like that just wasn't for me. My mom would take me to work. I didn't really understand what she did. I was like, yeah, no. And then I go to Fairfield University and I'm 18 years old and, you know, I was just there to, you know, have a good time, learn a few things. Sure. Right. Play some baseball. Yeah. Play some baseball. Yeah. I mean, I was 18. What did I know? Yeah, right. Right. So for some stupid reason, I mean, I'm sure they have their reasons, but for some reason, uh, the athletes have to declare their major before other students for whatever reason. So here I am and I'm like, I'm in the business school, like I'm enrolled in the business school because I think there was like a nursing school and like a arts and sciences. So I'm in the business school. So I only have like, I don't know, like six or seven different majors that I can choose from. So I was like, dad, you know, I got to pick one, like help me pick one. 
And then he's like, well, accounting's never going to hurt you. So, like, if you learn accounting, that's something that will always help you. So just do that. <laughs> Parents are always that way. They go to accounting. My dad stuck me in accounting. I hated it. Oh, my God, dude. This was, <laughs> so I, I'm like, but what did I know? I was like, yeah, sure. Good idea, dad. So I get to the accounting and I'm like, holy shit, this is horrible. Like, this is the worst thing ever. But whatever. I sucked it up. I'm like, it's accounting. It, you know, I, I didn't. it did help me throughout the future, by the way. Um, so thanks, dad. Um, but I did hate it. And then I got an internship at Merrill Lynch and it really kind of opened my eyes to the financial markets. Oh. I immediately switched majors. So I had enough credits at that point where I'm, I think I'm an accounting, I think I'm only like two classes shy of an accounting major, believe it or not. Really? Um, yeah. You can go sit for the CPA and do that. When I tell you that there's, (laughs) I'd rather go get a cavity filled than study for, you know. I know, me too. It's not for me. Yeah, me neither. Um, people are like, why don't you go back and finish? And I'm like, why on earth would I do that to myself? No, thank you. Right, right, right. So I, I, you know, I switched to a finance major and, um, you know, that was really it. And then I graduated Fairfield and Josh Brown hires me out of college and the rest is history. No way. Josh Brown hired you. I never knew that. Yup. That's crazy. 22 years old. Wow. And he was my first boss. He was like 26. He had to be be like, I was going to say, he'd be like 23. There's a blog post about it, you know, that he wrote years ago when I first started my blog. And uh, he's like, yeah, I've known this guy for a long time. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? That is funny. So you went to work for Merrill Lynch. Were you in like the wealth management part of Merrill Lynch? Or That's exactly right. And I had the opportunity to live in Manhattan uh, for the first time because I went to school in Fairfield, which is 45 minutes hour away uh, from New York and Connecticut. Uh, I got to live in Manhattan. And it was the best summer of my life. You know, really opened my eyes. I was like, wow, you know, like this is great. You know, so I'm going to learn how to trade and I'm going to do all these things. I didn't know that my life would lead me to technicals. But at that time, like I knew I was into the market. I was like reading Wall Street Journal every day and IBD. And I'm like, you know. With the accounting background, you know, one, I like to make fun of accountants all the time. But the cool thing is you can really rip apart financial statements and like really understand the guts and glue of the business if you do it right. It's funny because like my, you know, we have like, I have a guy that I work with that does like videos for us and stuff. And he just started his own company. And like, I'm talking about the top line and the bottom line and like this and that. And he's looking at me like I have six heads. And I'm like, you know, it's, you know, the top line is like the sales, the money that's coming in. And then like, I'm like the bottom line on an income statement. And then he's like, oh, okay, well, nice. Thanks. You know, like, Cause these are like more artsy guys. Like they don't know anything about that stuff, you know, but they, he's got to learn if he's going to be running his own business. Yeah. I saw a VC from the West coast. Because the West Coast VCs are very different than like uh, Chicago or New York VCs. And he said, I just learned what BIPs, you know, basis points were today. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> so so why technicals? How did you get into that? Who's, who turned you on to that? I hit that fork in the road when I'm like, you know, I was 23. And I'm like, listen, I got to learn. I got to move on. I got to learn something. You know, college didn't teach me anything about this stuff. Um, so I need to get some more formal training. So I was like, all right, do I get a master's? Do I get an MBA or something? Or because my father has an MBA, you know, that's just old school mentality. And then, uh, you know, or I can get my CFA and, you know, learn fundamental analysis or get my CMT and learn technical analysis. And for me, it's just like, I was like, all right, do I want to take my CFA and learn about companies and learn about this? Or do I want to get my CMT and learn about stocks? And I was like, I don't care about companies. I want to trade stocks. So like at the time, it seemed like a no brainer to do the technical route. And then in hindsight, I mean, it was the best decision I ever made, obviously, like looking back on that. But yeah, so that that was it. And then once I started reading and getting into it, I fell in love and, and that was it. 
so stocks and then, you know, interest rates, Forex, commodities, cryptocurrency. What's the difference when you're using technical analysis from sort of asset class to asset class? Well, so for me, I'm a John Murphy disciple through and through. His books were the first books I read, and I was just a Murphy guy. So for me, what that means is that I look at the market from an intermarket perspective. So I'm using all the asset classes in conjunction with one another to make weight of the evidence conclusions. So we're looking at commodities to make decisions in stocks. We're looking at commodities to make decisions on interest rates. We're looking at interest rates and the bond market to make decisions on stocks and commodities. We're looking at the stock market to make decisions on bonds and interest rates. Like We're going all across the board. Cryptocurrency is another animal because there's really no correlation there. And it's a tiny, meaningless market, right? This is like nothing. Like, you know, if you have any money at all, you can't be in this market, right? It's a retail, (laughs) right? No, right? Yeah. If you're an institution, you can't play in these. It's a crazy market. Yeah, you can't play in these little tiny nothings. Not regulated, not not big enough. Yeah. Well, it's not worth it. You would have to buy the whole market for, if you you have $100 billion, you can't trade cryptocurrencies. So if you have any sort of asset whatsoever, you can't touch it. That's why from the other asset classes that are real markets, Forex, commodities, the stock market, the bond market, of course, you know, you could really see where real money is flowing, real institutional money, and using them in conjunction with another really helps. And as far as the technicals are concerned, we're just analyzing supply and demand. So it's not so much that it changes from one asset class to another. It's just that you have to understand the mechanics behind each of these asset classes, understand that stocks move differently than commodities with respect to volatility and things of that nature. So it's more understanding the mechanics behind what you're analyzing than the analysis itself changing. So how do you see the capital flows? What sort of indicators do you look at to see if money's flowing into a stock or a marketplace or out of a stock or a marketplace? I mean, listen, I can give you a zillion examples, but like, let's just, let's just keep it simple. Let's just talk about interest rates, right? Since I'm stupid, keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm a keep it simple, stupid guy across the board. Keep it simple, stupid. I mean, I, you can really make this complicated if you want, but no thanks as far as I'm concerned. Um, just keep it simple. So let's talk about interest rates. So we can look at the stock market and see what the stock market is pricing in with respects to interest rates, right? Because if the market thinks interest rates are going higher, they're going to be more inclined to be investing in regional bank stocks, right? Because regional bank stocks tend to do well in a rising rate environment. However, if the market believes that interest rates are going to be going lower, then fixed income investors that are not getting their yields in the bond market have to go to the stock market to get it. So you're going to see a sympathy bid in things like real estate investment trusts or utilities that are higher dividend paying equities. So if you compare and create a ratio of regional banks versus REITs, for example, that's going to look very, very similar to the U.S. 10-year yield. They're going to look practically identical, in fact. And then if you look at the commodities market, we have a very similar phenomenon where you look at a a gold-to-copper ratio, right? And that's going to be very highly correlated to interest rates as well. That's just one example of how we can look at the bond market to see what the bond market is pricing in for interest rates and then look at other asset classes to see if those asset classes are in agreement with the bond market or if there's some sort of divergence where with new lows in U.S. 10-year yields, you're seeing higher lows in a regional bank REITs uh, ratio. Or like we saw coming into the fourth quarter, as U.S. 10-year yields were making new highs into the end of September, early October, the 
copper-gold ratio was already rolling over, putting in lower highs, and the regional banks versus REITs ratio was also putting in lower highs. So the interest rates were telling you one thing, but the stock market and commodities market was telling you that the interest rates are about to get slaughtered, which really helped us be very bullish of bonds, particularly with our bearish stocks thesis going into the beginning of October, right? So all of this confirmed each other using the stock market, the commodities market to make a bet on bonds. And so you were able to do that ahead of the roll. When you see an indicator on a chart like that, that you just described, what's the period of time that you would expect to wait for the market to kind of go the way you thought it was going to go? It's happening simultaneously, right? Because it's either interest rates are going to break down and catch down to what the stocks market and commodities market are suggesting, or stocks and commodities are going to catch up and the interest rate market is the one that's right, right? That's certainly possible, right? So it's all about defining your risk in your specific trade. That's the global macro setup. And then you got to look to the bond market and say, okay, how am I going to manage risk? In my case, I was long TLT calls. Um, and I was very vocal about it at the time. It actually ended up paying for my entire wedding, that that trade. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we can talk about that in a minute. One of the interesting things, like, as a trader, you're always looking for edge. And with the speed of the markets, you know, there's no speed edge anymore. The HFT guys are going to, are gonna, they've cleaned that all up. But it feels like, to me, there's edge in the option market if you can figure out how to trade them and know how to trade them. And what you just said was you were long TLT calls. How do you use technical analysis to trade options? Well, options are just a vehicle. Yeah. So how do I pick my strikes and figure out if I want to sell puts, sell calls, buy puts, buy calls? Well, full disclosure, I'm the technical analyst here. I'm not an options expert. We're very lucky that we have Sean McLaughlin, uh, who, Jeff, I know you know. Sean is our chief option strategist. He's the guy that I go to to you know walk me through because he he thinks at it from a different perspective than I do. I'm like I'm like let's just you know I'm just, I'm like let's just buy the calls and he's like well you know volatility is a little high right now so we, we should finance that you know so for me I have more difficulty identifying what is higher implied volatility versus weaker. He's better at that uh, than I am. Okay, that's fair. You know, so he brings kind of sort of a different dynamic to it. Um, which people love. I mean, we have a all-star options. I mean, we have investors all over the world that absolutely love it. And Sean doing a fantastic job because what he does is that he just takes our ideas and he creates options strategies around the ideas that Bruni and I are putting out. So it's a very easy job for him and he's so good at it. Well, it can be lower risk too if you do it right. No question. People were like, oh, options are too risky. And I'm like, well, depending on how you use it, it could be actually way safer. <laughs> yeah, if you're just going naked short, calls or puts, yeah, they can be super risky and more risk than the market. But if you've got a strategy around it, and I think, you know, not to plug Tasty Trade, but I think they do a really good job of educating people, tastytrade.com, which is based here in Chicago on, on option strategy. And those guys are pros too. I am not a pro options trader, but I've used platforms like ycharts.com to sort of pick strikes to try to take a position in different stocks over a longer time period of time, if I think that stock's going to move, um, it can be cheaper because you can use leverage to buy that stock in the calls, depending on the volatility and all that stuff and how far out you go, than it is just to buy the stock. Um, you can use a little leverage and, and, and juice your return. Not to mention if volatility is elevated, you can sell 
and collect the cash and help finance the trade. So it actually winds up being even cheaper. That's right. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And then you just manage it, you know, daily. You can't just put it on and walk away. But and and you know, I've not. I wouldn't trade. I know a lot of people that do earnings plays with options. Um, Nicole Sherrod is one. Andy Swan's another one. I would never do that myself because how I understand options, I'd be better off at a craps table than I would um, on an options play. You know, I might as well go to Vegas. And at least you're getting free drinks. Yeah, at least sometimes. <laughs> I, free is a, a relative term in Vegas. Fair enough. So you got married recently. You talked about your wedding. How did that all go down? I've got to plan a wedding in the next year, so I'm I'm curious about that. I'm very lucky. I have, uh, you know, my wife is uh, is is very responsible. <laughs> Unlike her husband. <laughs> if it was up to me, man, no way it would have gone down that smoothly. But it was great, you know. And her mother's great, also. Uh, my sister and my mom tried to help as much as they can, and you know, me and the fellas just we just tried to stay out of the way. Yeah, no kidding. I was good with the flowers, though. And the flower meetings, I was MVP. MVP. I, I, I blew off the flower meetings. Um, I just wanted to know where the church was and what time I was supposed to be there and what I was supposed to wear. Oh, I was so good. I caught him off guard, you know, with my interest in the flowers. And, you know, I got some props for that. So where did you honeymoon? So we went straight to Greece. Yeah. Spent two weeks in the, in, in the Greek Isles. It was amazing. Oh, nice. Did you go to the Parthenon while you were there? We did. Spent the day in, in uh, Athens. So what we did was we spent two weeks in the islands. We went to uh, Santorini, Mykonos, and Naxos, and which was definitely one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. Oh my god, so amazing! Never, I've never been there. Been to Turkey, never been to Greece. Dude, you gotta go to the Greek yeah, I know. islands. I do, I do. I, I I love history, so I'd love to go. Oh my god, Athens was cool. Good food. I actually presented at the. Uh, the CMT Association has a chapter in Athens, so I actually spoke there. Really? Yeah, because I, I told Morgan, you know, we did two weeks in, in, in the islands, and I was like, listen, I got to spend time in Europe. I have clients in London and Dublin, Amsterdam. So I'm like, I need to get out there. So after our honeymoon, instead of coming home to the, back to the States, why don't we just stay in Europe for two more weeks, and I can go see my clients, and you just tag along. Yeah. Because she's, she's done that before. We did that in Asia a couple of years ago. Went to KL and Singapore and Hong Kong, Taiwan. And she just uh, tagged along and helped me out and stuff like that. And it was great. So I, we did the same thing. So we spent another two weeks in Europe and went to, uh, I spoke in Athens. Um, and then I've got some clients in London, of course. So I did some business there. Um, I spoke at the CFA Society in Amsterdam. Oh, very cool. I went to Dublin and spoke there. It was a great experience. So you grew up in Miami. You went to school in Connecticut, you're in New York, and now you live in, in Sonoma. Why the move from New York? Because New York's arguably the center of worldwide finance. And, and do you miss New York? And, and is, how has being away from New York either hurt you or benefited you? So it has been, it, it really has been an amazing experience. So the way it was going, I was managing a hedge fund in New York, right? This is 2014, 2015. And, you know, just we had under 10 million in assets, and it's just kind of, we're just getting going, trying to like grow and running, managing a GP is expensive, like super, super expensive. Yeah, it is. Oh my God. We just made an investment in a company out of London to help people with that. It's called Valbond.io. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know in Europe, 150000 in legal fees to set up a fund like that. And these guys do it for 11000 I don't know what your costs were, but the ongoing expense of running a hedge fund GP 
can be astronomical. Everybody's making money. The attorneys are making a fortune. The fund admins are killing it. Everybody's making money except for JC, right? <laughs> but that's fine. You know, I was fortunate enough to have dinner with a few billionaire hedge fund managers and they, you, you know, not without mentioning any names and they had the same struggles. So I wasn't going through anything that others didn't. So I was like, all right, just keep grinding it out. We'll get there one day. And then so then Benzinga, um, you know, our friends out of Detroit. So this is back in 2014. They're like, all right, we started this back end provider where if you want to sell research or sell, you know, anything like on a subscription basis, they'll handle everything. Um, you just send them the work and then they'll distribute it and sell it and cut your check every month. And I'm like, well, I'm doing the homework anyway. If nobody buys it, I still have to do it. Right. <laughs> so like it was nothing, nothing changes for me. And then you may or may not send me a check at the end of each month. Fine. Let's see how that works out. And as it turned out, there was a lot more demand for my research than I thought. And then about a year, about summer of 2015, it got to the point where it was like, you know, my family came from Cuba. You know, I was the first generation here. And the money that we're talking about is is really not anything that, you know, I can responsibly laugh at, um, you know, considering, you know, where I'm from and kind of like how far we've come. So I was like, this doesn't make any sense. So I was like, all right, shelve the hedge fund, send investors back their money, no big deal. Move to California because we were in, we were in Napa Valley for Morgan's birthday, and she's like, why don't we live here? And I'm like, I don't know, why don't we live here? This is fantastic, you know. So we get back to New York, and um, she's like, you know, were you serious? You know, I, I was like, I was like, yeah, I would move. She's like, well, all right, I'm in, but I have to get a job first. And I'm like, all right, that's fair. And she literally two days later, uh, she's on a conference call with her company and they're like, hey, we have a job opening in the Bay Area. She's like, I'll take it. They paid for the whole relocation to California. No way. Unbelievable. Serendipity. It was a two year plan, to be honest with you. It was a two year plan. And then we we're going to go back to New York. I was going to relaunch the fund. But instead of having a research product, it was a research company, which was like a real running machine so that I didn't have to worry about it. And I could get back to managing the fund. And then as it turns out, you know, there was just so much more demand for our research than I could have ever imagined. You know, now we're a 10 person team. You know, we, we help institutions all over the world. And uh, I'm, four years later, I'm still in Sonoma. <laughs> yeah, how about it? And so people that buy your research, you said institutions, but has the sort of fragmentation of the wealth management business it used to be, you know, the big banks and the wealth managers. And now you've got all these RIAs that are spinning off and creating their own stuff, kind of like what Josh did. Are, are they your customers? Because banks would traditionally do their own research and give it to their people, right? You're 100% right. And, um, you know, we have an institutional price points that, you know, people pay a substantial amount of money for our research, but we have, you know, a simple $500 a quarter. And that really appeals to the RIA space, to your point. Because think about it, you know, these guys used to work at big firms, they had an army of technicians or analysts in general, and this was back in the 80s and 90s, as you're aware, and that just doesn't exist anymore. And then especially when they go independent, you know, they're completely left with nothing, you know, so they have to go out and find research. And fortunately, they really like what we do because we bring a global macro, big picture view, but then also break it down to individual trading ideas. So some people are interested in the trading ideas and not the macro stuff. That's fine. We have customers that they don't care about the trading ideas. They just like the macro stuff. And then there's guys, you know, we have clients, you know, let's say they have eight, $10 million net worth, you know, a little bit of real estate, some private equity, you know, portfolio. 
and they just really want to know that if shit is about to hit the fan, JC's there, like, you know, making sure that, you know, they know something's up. So everybody comes to us for different reasons. And I think, you know, the, the value that we bring is that we are completely unbiased. I mean, we really don't care. I don't care if gold doubles or goes to zero. That don't matter to me. Yeah, it does help. And and then do you guys do any trading at all? Just personally, um, and, and not a lot. Most of my investment dollars have gone back into the firm, which is why we're able to be where we are. I mean, we have a big team. So I've invested a lot of money in the growth, and we're continuing to do that. So that's really my primary investment. Um, I've got some private equity investments I've done as well. You know, I'm an investor in Coifin charting platform. Sure. Um, I'm an investor in the chart report, uh, which is a daily publication um, that sort of curates all the technical analysis being done around the world. Great product. So I've kind of, you know, dabbled in that space in areas that I'm familiar with a charting platform. I'm familiar, you know, uh, a publication about technical analysis. I can get behind that. Yeah. Gee, you might know a little bit about that. Yeah. I'll do some trading <laughs> when, uh, you know, when, when the opportunity, like I'm long silver right now, for example. Um, but I, it's not my primary job. And then w- will you disclose that? Like, so let's say you're long silver, you do a chart and it says you should be long silver. Obviously you wouldn't be long silver unless you did a chart that said you should be long silver. Will you disclose it to everybody? Like say, Hey, look, Here's the chart. Here's the research. I'm long silver, but this is why. Yeah, totally. And then, you know, there's disclosures on when I buy things and stuff like that. Um, That's all over the site and everything. Yeah, sure, 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 of course. Yeah. If I was going to be devil's advocate and I would say, you know, the best charts are at the bottom of the sea, you know, these things are looking backward and stuff like that. How, How do people like you respond to that sort of criticism? Well, the bottom of the sea thing, I mean, that's just silly, obviously, but the uh, <laughs> the backward looking thing, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's it's humorous as far as I'm concerned, because yeah, it looks at the past, but the only information that we have is from the past. So, you know, if you have information from the future, I'd love to see that, but the rest of us mere mortals are forced to analyze the past by definition. So, you know, what choice do we have? What about like... So if I go on, let's say, TD Ameritrade's website, and I want to look at analysis tools, they have like a gazillion of them. And it's so mind-boggling to try to figure out what to use. Like, how would somebody approach that and like use a tool that would work for them? What tools don't work? It's more about what tools you need for what purposes, right? So if you go to a hardware store and you're looking at tools, there's all sorts of stuff. A bunch of them, I don't even know what they are or what they could possibly be used for. But if you need that tool for whatever reason, that's where you go get it, right? So, you know, in the case of TD Ameritrade, but many other places as well, they have a long list of tools and you choose what you need for what reason. Like, what is it that you're trying to do? Like, uh, just Bollinger Bands, for example, those are a good tool. Like if you're trying to measure where the volatility is in a particular stock compared to where it's been, and you can see those standard deviations above and below that particular, I believe it's a 21-day exponential moving average, if I'm not mistaken. But you know, regardless, it's, uh, it, it shows you sort of the volatility. And if volatility is compressed, you know, there's a higher likelihood maybe that volatility will expand and maybe a big move is coming. You know, who knows? But that's a tool that you'll use if you want to see where volatility is in that particular uh, name. If you want to analyze momentum in a particular name, there are a variety of momentum tools 
there's MACD and ROC and others. I particularly like a, a an RSI is what I use, and that is my momentum indicator of choice um, because I want to analyze momentum. Or perhaps if you think a, a stock chart is too noisy for you and you'd like to smooth out that noise, maybe a moving average will be a tool that you can use to smooth out the noise, right? So it's more about deciding what it is that you're trying to do. And then there are different tools to accomplish those goals. Suppose I was a day trader and I'm going to open a position and close a position same day. What do you think the best intraday tools are to give me the best potential of making money? Well, I'm I'm not a day trader. I know. I'm not either, but a lot of people that are going to listen to this are. That's the reason I asked the question. So I just want to just up front, I am not a day trader. I have tried and I am not good at it. And I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Quite frankly, I don't I don't want to be good at it. It's just not something that I want to do. But I would argue that the best indicator uh, for day trader or any trader whatsoever is price. If you're not analyzing price, I think you're at a huge disadvantage. I think that is the most important thing we could look at. Anything after that, momentum or moving averages, whatever it is, all it is is a supplement to actual price. That's the most important thing. I used to, I remember guys on the floor used to use market profile a lot. It was developed at the board of trade. So they were kind of married to it. And, and I don't know if it works or not. You know, I used a little technical stuff when, when I traded like to find out kind of definite buy or sell points where you knew there was probably going to be some resistance or support in the market, but it didn't have to be there just totally dependent on the conditions. But generally, though, there were always orders that sort of congregated around those points. And so there was some trading that happened and you could get in or out of a market position there. What do you think of market profile or uh, tools like that? Market profiles where they put the volume bars on the side, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, listen, I think it's great. In fact, I think it's great for particularly new investors because the market profile really shows you where the churning is taking place, right? Where the real support and resistance lies. I'd argue that, you know, I go through 5,000 charts a week, right? So once you've been doing this for a while, you know where the support and resistance is, where that churning is without needing the market profile to confirm that. You could just look at the chart and you're like, yep, there it is. You know, you see the churning. Right, right. Interesting. So we were talking before we started this. Uh, you're starting to make wine now. Is this a charting thing? Do you chart the grapes? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, we we certainly chart the acid levels and the alcohol levels over time. There's no question about that. And the rain falls. I mean, there's a lot of charting taking place, uh, Jeff, <laughs> let me tell you. So, you know, I haven't made official announcements yet, um, but we are, you know, between us, there's some some motions behind the scenes where Chateau Fibonacci excellent, may or may not be a thing. <laughs> That's great. It's a, it's a fascinating business. I um, got into it because my, you know, my brother-in-law lived out there and I had, I'll never forget this. What wine like converted you? Where you, do you remember like... The first wine you had where you, you looked at the glass and you went, holy crap, that's great. And I want to drink more of it and learn how this is made. You know, I think it was uh, I think it was a Moulin Avant Beaujolais Cru uh, that I had. And I was like, this is juice. That's what really got me into learning about carbonic maceration and all that stuff. And um, 
you know, I study wine. I don't know if you know that. I, no, I didn't know that. I, I do too. Yeah. I've I, been taking some exams. I have never taken an exam. I, I you know, I'm like Louis Gallo, you know, Ernest and Julio Gallo. I, I'd like to talk about wine, but I'd rather drink it. I like the exams. Interesting. I, I really enjoy it because you know why? I don't sit around watching TV or like, you know, I'm not that guy. So for me, like if I'm not working or, you know, I'm out and I'm just home, like I took the French wine scholar exam. I passed that. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So that was really cool. And I really enjoyed the process. I'll, I'll be sitting for my certified sommelier exam later this year. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. That's tough to do. I really enjoyed it. My favorite thing with wine is pairing it with food. Well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> like you you said Moulin. Uh, Moulin Avant. Bougelet Cru, yeah. First thing in my head, roast chicken. Roast chicken. I'm cook. I'm having that with roast chicken. Yeah, no doubt. All right, no doubt. Yeah, that'll go well with roast chicken. No question. Sure. It would be just beautiful. So, like, what happened to me was my wife makes. You know, she's German, not from Germany, but you know, German heritage. Uh, makes the best sauerbraten. You know, it's a it's a pot roast thing, and we would have red wine with it, and it would always suck. And I was like, God. I can't match. I tried everything. And so I went to this wine shop where I used to buy a lot of wine. And this guy was pretty ingenious about matching stuff. And he said, you know, he said, this sounds really stupid, but German dish, why not a great Riesling? And I'm like, but it's white, red meat, you know. And he's like, no, just try it. And so I got an Alsatian Grand Cru Riesling. I can't remember who it was from. And it sang. It was like amazing. And and so now I just try to match it with the food, and it, it, it's a lot of fun that way. You could have a lot of fun with wine. It's an expensive hobby, but it doesn't have to be. You can find some really great wines for under 15 bucks if you shop and, and you know wait. Well, you know the move, Jeff. You know the move. You get a Coravin. That's the move. Change my life. Change my life. Because you can drink a Beaujolais or a Pinot Noir while you're making, or, or a Riesling or a white wine or Sauvignon Blanc, whatever, depending on the time of year, your mood. You know, you can have a glass of wine. You don't have to open up the bottle and be committed to it. And then for dinner, if you're having the steak, you can open up the Bordeaux with the Coravin. You don't even need to open the bottle and you could pour yourself a nice glass of Bordeaux for your dinner. And then you've had two glasses of wine. And then maybe if you want to pour yourself a Sauterne or a Vin Santo from Greece, perhaps as a dessert wine, you can do that too. And boom, two and a half, three glasses of wine. And you didn't even have to open up a bottle. Beautiful, nice little Tuesday. So for Christmas this year, my future son-in-law gave me a Coravin. <laughs> so I guess, you know, he's trying to get my good graces, but he's a good kid anyway. Very, very cool. Okay, we have a little bit of time left. I'm going to just shoot some words to you, like word association, and you can just riff off it. Is that okay? All right, all right. This is unrehearsed, everybody. Uh-oh. Favorite baseball team? I grew up an Orioles fan. Really? Orioles fan. Awesome. I, I thought you'd say Yankees. Nope. I grew up hating the Yankees, actually. Pro football. Dolphins. Fish, yeah, no doubt. Seminoles. I hate them. I'm a Canes fan. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I bleed orange and green. <laughs> but you want to know something? I swear, Jeff, I bleed orange and green. There's no sports team on earth that I get more emotional about than the Miami Hurricanes. I mean, I grew up going to the Orange Bowl in the 80s. So, But you want to know something about Florida State as much as I can't stand them? Yeah. At least we play each other every year, and we both hate Florida more than we hate each other. So we hate the Gators more than we hate each other. So we agree on that on that one note. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, 
you're on a desert island. You can have any food delivered to you in the world made by the best chefs. But you can only drink one winery's wine. And it can be like they can make 10 wines, you know, in that winery. Or they could just make one, like, you know, a champagne house. Which one do you pick? There's a winery in Sonoma, believe it or not, that is called Kivelstadt. It's in Glen Ellen. And they have such a nice variety of wines across the board from their Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc to their, they do a, a Zinfandel using carbonic maceration. They have a beautiful Syrah. Um, they do a nice, uh, they have a Charbonneau. They do a really nice job, nice stuff. So if, they do so many good things that I would say if I haven't, if I, if I was drinking their wine for the rest of my life on a deserted island, probably be all right. Okay. <laughs> uh, stock market the rest of this year. Uh, lower or higher from here? We are, it's July the 17th of 2019. And I mean, the path of least resistance to me seems higher in equities. Um, there's no question. I think we can use the previous highs in the Dow. So January 2018 highs, um, the fourth quarter highs last year and the highs earlier this year, a few months ago, um, sort of as our, our floor. If we're above that, I think we need to be airing on the long side. If we lose those highs and, and we're below that, then come talk to me about lower prices. But if we're above those highs, I think we got to err on the long side and be buying stocks. Okay. How about uh, Fed cuts rates and next year? Stock market higher, lower with an election year coming up? I don't know anything about that. What the Fed does ain't my problem. I can't worry about what they're doing. Not my problem. Uh, election year, uh, 2020, uh, good for stocks, bad for stocks. I don't know, Jeff. I'll worry about 2020 and 2020. I don't even know what I'm having for dinner tonight. <laughs> I'll bet you do. <laughs> yeah. You roasted, roasted chicken in Beaujolais. Duh. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Duh. <laughs> hey, it's been good having you on the program. I really appreciate you, you spending time with us today. Um, it's JC Peretz of allstarcharts.com. You can find him on Twitter at allstarcharts. Uh, hopefully the hurricanes will do okay for him this year. I think so. We got Florida next month. I'm stoked in Orlando. Um, I got 77 to nothing Miami. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have Dick a plan for him. It's not, it's not like that, but all right. All right. You had to plug in the Cubs and the bears. Yeah. Right. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Great chatting with you and uh, happy travels and best to your wife. Congratulations on your marriage. All right, Jeff. Thanks a lot, man. I'll see you soon. See ya. Bye. Traders, thank you for making it to the Avengers Endgame of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. Hope you join us again next week when a brand new market maven will be here to make you a more informed trader. In the meantime, please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever it is most convenient for you to do something along those lines. Follow us on YouTube and Instagram. Join our highly exclusive Facebook community. And also, check out the birthday deals we're offering for a limited time on our websites. There's never been an easier way to start trading futures than using other people's money, or at least that's true in my humble opinion. And with that, we've reached the end of my notes, which means we've also reached the end of this week's Limit Up podcast. So I must bid you all a heartfelt goodbye. Until we meet again, namaste. And trade well. This episode produced by Dante32.
Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.